So this morning we're continuing our series in Mark. I'll, uh, I'll read from, uh, well, I'll read all of chapter 12 just now and then explain a little bit of where we're going. So uh, this is Jesus teaching in the temple um, as, where we left him last week. Uh, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to the to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, who's Sorry, brought the coin and he said to them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Then how can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love your word. By your spirit, would you take these words that I have read and the words that will come forth from my mouth. And may they be your voice to us, God. Would you take us from the word of God to the God of the word? Because if that doesn't happen, we might as well go home now. Holy Spirit, would you teach us would you show us how you want us to live our lives as your followers? Loving you because you loved us first. Amen.
I think that this passage this morning, I think it has actually one of my favorite, I know I often say that, but one of my favorite bits of scripture in it. Last week, I said that I couldn't wait to speak on this, and I can't, I just wish that we had longer. My clock is ticking down there already. Um, if, you, if you haven't been here, if you haven't managed to catch up with the podcasts, and I know that for some of you, podcasting is an incredibly technological thing. Um, in fact, I actually gave my first lesson this week on, on how to get into the podcast podcast, um, but I'm glad to see that Pamela's, I'm embarrassing her now, but Pamela's here this morning. She obviously didn't trust herself to find the podcast uh, without coming along. But uh, if you haven't been listening to the podcast, then we're doing this series through Mark's Gospel at the moment. It is called Re-Jesus, and it is called Re-Jesus for two reasons. Firstly, it is called Re-Jesus because it is about Jesus. It is regarding Jesus. So in the same way as you put Re at the top of a letter, if you're writing a formal letter, re Uh, why you should give me a pay rise or something like that so they know what is coming next. This is a service re-Jesus. It is regarding Jesus. It is about Jesus. But it is also called re-Jesus because it's actually re-Jesusing ourselves. So you know, uh, you might uh, go away somewhere and you might say, I need to rejuvenate myself. I need to replenish myself. I need to to top up on things. I need to get back to, to where I was before I went away on holiday before I went away to that health spa, before I had that facial or whatever it might happen to be. Well, in that same way, this series, Re-Jesus, is about saying that we all get Jesus wrong. We all get Jesus wrong. We all allow Jesus to leak. We all make mistakes as we seek to grow in our faith. And what we want to do through this series, and what I pray will happen through this series, but also our next series, which I'm excited to announce this morning, drum roll, um, is going to be through Acts. So we are going to follow on from a gospel, uh, looking at re-Jesus. And we're going to basically continue to do the same sort of thing. We're going to look at Acts, and we're going to say, okay... The disciples have walked through the gospel, and at the end of the gospel, Acts begins, and at the end of Acts, we begin. Well, not quite, but you know, you'll hopefully see what I mean. And what we're saying is, who is Jesus really? And in Acts, we'll be saying, how did these people, these witnesses, this first generation and second generation of followers of Christ, how did they understand Jesus, and therefore, how they were to live as people who bore his name, Christians? as they started to be called in the book of Acts. And, so, and, and the reason, my hypothesis, is this, that we all get Jesus wrong. And we see that in this passage, and that's why it's such an important passage for us. Remember, the Jews were expecting a military Messiah. That's what they wanted. Even as they cried out uh, to, to Jesus in last week's passage, as he came up from uh, Jericho into Jerusalem, there were still people expecting a military Messiah. They got messiahship wrong and they got messiahship wrong even from how the old test they thought they were understanding the old testament right but they were actually understanding it wrong and that's why jesus uh, says to them you know david says and it's amazing actually david calls the messiah lord okay 
Therefore, how can he be his son? And, and the reason that Jesus says that is because in, in one of the Psalms, uh, uh, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies uh, under your feet. And, and essentially, what the Jews were waiting for was a son of David. In other words, somebody from David's line who was going to become the next great king of Israel, leading Israel into freedom. And what Jesus does is he turns... He takes him to the Old Testament and he says, actually, you've understood Messiahship wrongly. He is not uh, a Messiah in the line of David, of the kingship of David in the way that you think he is. Because actually, because actually, he is one who was before David. He is one who came before David was, which is why David can call him Lord. It would be very strange if if David were to start calling his son Lord. And therefore, the Messiah cannot just simply be David's son, although he is from David's line. And, And straight away, we're seeing that these people who loved Scripture who were devoted to God, were not reading scripture quite right. It's a little bit like uh, last week when we thought about the den of robbers in relation to the temple. And people came up to me after the service and were like, I can't believe I've never seen that before. I can't believe that I never thought that the den isn't the place where the robbing happens. The den is the place that the robbers retreat to when they've already done the robbing. Uh, and, and, so, and, and that's what was happening here in the, in, uh, the, the followers of, uh, sorry, the people of Israel were looking at these Old Testament scriptures that meant so much to them that they understood and they were getting Jesus wrong. How much to, how much like them can we be? We read the scriptures, we try and apply them to our lives, and yet we get it wrong. It's the same with that, uh, you know, my favorite part of this passage, but all I'm going to use it to do really is introduce the theme, is that encounter with the Sadducees. I love it. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. That's why, yeah, well done. For, for the podcast, that's why they're sad, you see. I say it every single time, and you groan every single time. But the, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees are absolutely tied to the temple. The Sadducees are absolutely devoted to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch. They, that was what they considered to be authoritative. And they come to Jesus with this ridiculous question, a man dies, and, then, and it's, it was called the, uh, the Leverite uh, commandment or something like that essentially to continue the family line the next brother would marry and then the next brother and then the next brother and then the next brother and, and, and Jesus says to them people who were devoted to the first five books of the scripture you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God but the thing is they did know the scriptures they, they, they probably actually, many Sadducees would have been able to literally recite the first five books. That's how important it was to them. And yet somehow in this reading of this book, they've missed this thing. They've missed the fact that in a verb tense, God shows that he proves resurrection. And, and Jesus says to them, have you missed that bit? God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. God doesn't say, I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And you can almost see them. Oh man, I, I, how did I miss that? How did I not see that? 
How did I not see the den of robbers? How did I not see that David calls him Lord? And, and I, I wonder if they're like stood there going, oh, don't. Or the Jewish version of that. I don't know what that would be. But I, want, you know, I wonder if they're stood there going, oh, my goodness. How did we miss that? And the Sadducees did it. They devoted themselves to Scripture. The Pharisees did it. Many people in Israel did it. And yet what Jesus proves through those two stories in Mark chapter 12, those two uh, encounters, those two instances, is this. You can know the Scripture all you like. But as the phrase says at times, familiarity breeds contempt. We can think that we know something and have missed what is hidden in plain sight. And so all that we're going to do this morning is race for you just through just a few things that we see in this passage. We'll see how far we can possibly get with it because it is absolutely incredible. I just want to, and I want to kind of try and pluck something quickly out of the different aspects of this passage. So we've done the Sadducees bit. We've done the, the bit where Jesus talks about uh, David being, uh, David referring to him as Lord. And now I just want to quickly look at what the NIV titles the parable of the tenants. You see, again, this is masterful storytelling from Jesus. He takes this parable and, and remember how in the Old Testament, uh, Nathan the prophet, when David has committed adultery, he tells David a story and he draws David into it and he gets David's anger up and David is like, I'm going to get that person who did that. And then Nathan says, that person is you. Well, Jesus does that in this passage here. Jesus starts to tell a story and it goes like this. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. It's reminiscent of Isaiah. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey at harvest time. And just pause there for a second. Because you see, what's happening in, this, in those opening few words of this incredible story that Jesus is telling is he is drawing the people of Israel. He's drawing the Pharisees and the religious leaders into this story. And the story for them is going like this. Rome are the baddies in this story. Rome are the absent landlord in this story. Rome are the people who have kind of built this watchtower. They've put their soldiers and all of that sort of thing in place in Israel to draw uh, taxes away from us, to draw things away from us. And, And the people are starting to think, this is a story about Rome and Jesus is going to confront Rome. And they're drawn into the story. Do you know what I mean? They're all, they're into that story now. And then he says this. At harvest time, he sent a servant. And suddenly the story flips. Because if you don't, if you don't know, but go back and read some of the Old Testament prophets, servant is a word that is used again and again in the Old Testament prophets for the prophets themselves. And so suddenly the people who are hearing this story find out, realize that this isn't a story about Rome and what they're doing to Israel. This is a story about Israel and what Israel is doing to God because God has sent the servants and he draws Israel into this story and he goes, and and that's why at the very end of it, it says that they realized that he had told the parable against them. 
And there's just a few things to just pull out of this very quickly. But the first thing is this. They realized that the parable was told against them. If you realized that a parable was told against you, uh, I wonder what you would do if Jesus, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, was, in, was stood in front of you, told a parable, you realized it was a, a parable told against you, whether, would you fall on your knees in repentance? I, I hope that you would. I hope that I would. I hope that if I suddenly located myself in the parable and realized that the baddie in the parable is me, that I would fall on my knees in repentance. But what happens here, we actually read that they say, oh, well, actually, that parable's been told against us, so we have to go out and kill the one who told it. And so straight away we see the reaction of human pride to the holiness of God. We see the reaction of humans to, the, to, to what happens when... When God speaks truth into our lives, uh, we, we said in our prayer earlier, uh, remembrance, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how much does this parable show it? Because whilst I would love to say that I would fall on my knees, I know that too quickly I might start to try and find a way of justifying myself or doing some sort of theological gymnastics that gets me out of trouble. But the main, uh, you know, if you like, the essence of this parable is this. There is fruit in the vineyard. God is the owner of the vineyard. You have to give back to God from what he has given to you. And, and what, what Jesus, and in telling this parable, Jesus is basically saying to the leaders of Israel, Israel are not giving back to God. You are not giving back to God. You are stopping from giving back to God. In fact, what you think you can do is take God out of the equation, become gods of your own lives and keep everything for yourself. Now I'm not making this about finances, that is going to come in a moment, but this isn't necessarily about finance, this is actually saying uh, you need to see fruit that is in keeping with repentance, that's what John the Baptist said, I came across this quote during the week, the tenants live in a self-centered cutthroat world with no awareness of God or God's judgment, they want to establish themselves as lords of their own little world, they reject the reality that they are creatures of God who live in God's vineyard. And I thought, well, how different am I? How different are we? It's so easy for us to to locate ourselves at the center of our lives. It's so easy for us to, to try and push God to one side to say, well, I do that thing on a Sunday. I do my little bit of religious stuff because these were people who did all of the religious stuff. They had every religious box ticked. And yet God says to them, you are not giving the fruit of God-centered living back to the one who gave it to you. They reject the reality that they are creatures of God who live in God's vineyard. What is the fruit that God wants from us? Well, we can flip back in Mark to the previous chapter. God wants his house to be a a temple of prayer for all the nations. God wants us to love him if we flip forward with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. God wants us to to love our neighbor as ourself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit that God longs to see in the lives of people who recognize that this is his vineyard. (laughs) This is his 
game. As one, as a, as a great friend said to me recently, you know, it's God's game. He, it's his ball. He gets to decide the rules. The problem for the people of Israel, for the leaders in particular, but for all of the people of Israel, they were like, if we can take control back, then we can push God not only out, but we can kill God and throw him out of the vineyard in the most humiliating way. Which is exactly what happened. But how often, I wonder, does history repeat itself in the life of the church? So, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Give back to God what he has already given given to you what he is doing in your lives. Just very quickly there, that's it. The next thing is just incredible. Don't you just love how uh, this, uh, this passage about the coin, about this coin and, and whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. And what we need to understand a little bit of uh, first and foremost is that Rome were the great oppressors from I think it's 6 AD. They kind of took over, they did a census uh, and, and essentially everybody had to pay taxes to Rome. That's why uh, they initially thought that Jesus was telling that the last parable against Rome because Israel hated Rome and then they come to Jesus Jesus this teacher who is causing a stir who some might describe as revolutionary and they say to Jesus who should we pay taxes to see sorry should we pay ta- taxes or not is it right to pay taxes to Caesar and, and in understanding this, we, we need to know a little bit more of the context. So basically, there was a guy, Jesus was from Galilee, Jesus of Galilee. There was another revolutionary around this time, slightly earlier, called Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean, and people were maybe getting a little bit confused, it is slightly confusing, Judas from Galilee, Jesus from Galilee. Judas from Galilee was a violent revolutionary. We read about him in the beginning of Acts, actually, but ultimately, he is killed and the revolution ends. And so when the, when the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and they say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They are essentially remembering Judas the Galilean who led a violent revolution. And the way that they do this is, is by recalling the fact that Israel um, has to give taxes to Caesar. And the way that this tax was paid was through a coin that was seen as the ultimate sign of idolatry. And the reason that the coin was seen as the ultimate sign of idolatry is because a lot like our coins today, on one side it had a a head, and it had the head of Caesar on it, and it said Caesar Augustus, or sorry, it said Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So straight away, that coin is saying, actually, this guy with his head on the coin is God, is the son of God. And on the flip side, it had a picture of a woman, um, and, on, and it said, high priestess. So, uh, and so essentially, it's kind of saying, right, well, Caesar, the Roman cult, if you like, is divine. The, the Romans and the way they've set themselves up and the way that Caesar has set himself up is saying that he is divine. Should we pay taxes to him or not? This is the ultimate blasphemy. And Jesus says to them, and this is so funny, and you can laugh at this, he says to them, can you give me a coin? And the answer should have been, no, of course we can't give you a coin because it's, it's blasphemous, it's idolatrous. We, the Pharisees, we're the Herodians, we are the keepers of all that is right under the rule of the living God. Of course we can't give you a coin, but they go, yeah, there you go. And straight away, this is where you have to understand it, Jesus has caught them straight away. It's funny. You can laugh. 
Okay, it's funny. Straight away, the very fact that they have the coin in their pocket means that they have brought themselves under the idolatrous rule of Rome anyway. And so Jesus has shown them up straight away. You've got a Roman coin in your pocket. But that's not the really funny bit. And, and, and so Jesus says to them, well, whose head is on the coin? Caesar's head is on the coin. Okay, we'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It is so important on this Remembrance Sunday that we have this reading. Because you would never perhaps have associated this with violence or anything. I know I certainly wouldn't have. But what Jesus is doing here, what the... What the what they're testing him to find out, what they're testing him to find out is do you, do you agree with what Judas did? Do you agree with what Judas the Galilean did? Do you agree with the violent revolt against Rome? And Jesus says, no. I am not that sort of leader. My revolution is not that sort of revolution. I came across a brilliant quote during the week that said, for Jesus, violent revolution is not revolutionary enough. For the God who says, turn the other cheek. For the God who says, bless those who persecute you. For the God who, who says, love those who hate for you. Love those who hate you. Violent revolution is not revolutionary enough. And he says, give to Caesar what has Caesar's head on it. But then here's the second revolutionary bit, or the third revolutionary bit. Give to God what is God's. One of the early church fathers said of this passage that basically what Jesus is saying here is give to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image and give to God that which bears God's. In other words, in case you miss it, all of you. The coin bears the image of Caesar. Give it back to him. But you, we, bear the image of God. And as his followers, we are called to give all of ourselves, our finance included, back to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it says in Psalm 25. And we are called to give all of that to God. I love this stuff. I just hope that in the race through of it that there is at least some, you know, some morsels for us to take because I know that we could literally, as I was looking at these different bits of teaching, I was just like, oh man, we could do a week on each of these parables and still not have enough time. But what I want to do just with time uh, in mind is I want to jump uh, forward to the greatest commandment and, and then actually to finish with what Jesus says about the widow's offering. The thing about the greatest commandment is this. Jesus recites, uh, Jesus recites something that is called the Shema. It's a prayer that Orthodox Jews would say every single day, I believe I'm right in saying. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is something that uh, uh, a Jew would say every single day. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And all I just want to very quickly throw out, there's so much that I could say on, on what, what the heart is and what the mind is and what the soul is and what the strength is. We literally don't have enough time. But I just want to pose this question for us. I, it hit me as I was walking out of Tesco uh, earlier in the week and I just thought, 
how does what I've just done in Tesco, how does what I have just bought in Tesco show a love for neighbor, which is like my best love for myself? And the reason I say my best love for myself is because, like, you know, if, if you're anything like me, you sometimes have doubts about yourself and you're sometimes not very good at loving yourself and people are always saying, oh, be kind to yourself and all. So that's why, you know, to say love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean, well, actually, I think I'm pretty lousy so I can pre- treat my la- neighbors pretty lousy. You're meant to have a, a high view of yourself. I'm meant to have a high view of myself because I'm made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And the question for us is, is, is this. How does everything that we do reflect our love for God and our love for people? Jesus says, or it's kind of added to in the other synoptic gospels, for, for on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, these two commandments summarize everything else that God has said. Love God and love people. And, and, and of course, the reason that Jesus adds this second commandment and doesn't refer to it as two commandments, he says this is the most important command, grouping them forever together, is because he, re- he knows, Jesus knows that you can't love God, you can't truly be loving God if you're not truly loving people. And that means that we need to have that question ringing sharp in our ears. How does what I'm doing show my love for neighbor how does what I'm doing reflect my love for neighbor who is my neighbor Jesus is asked in Luke's gospel and he tells the parable of the good Samaritan and said your neighbor is whoever is in need how and like this this wasn't a problem for them in the you know at the beginning of the first century they didn't have tomatoes coming from Kenya or strawberries coming from Kenya or clothes getting made in Bangladesh or wherever it might happen to be. This wasn't a problem for them. But if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, it needs to become a question for us. How does everything that we do in our lives reflect love for neighbor who is anyone who is in need? Whoever needs me is my neighbor and we express love with active compassion and justice i just want to finish with this because we can't ignore the widow's offering because here she is there's folk, there were these like trumpets apparently I, I i just couldn't get my head around how these would actually be cast but uh trumpets and like you chucked your money into the to the bit of the trumpet you know the bit at the front of the trumpet and um, and you chuck your money in there and if it was a big amount of money it would make a whole load of clanging but if it was little light coins it would make no clanging and, and, and one of the really important things to think about here is Jesus is, uh, Jesus is speaking to people who were religiously right therefore the assumption we can make is this they were tithing just very quickly the assumption that we can make is that the people who Jesus is talking to were tithing they were already giving a tenth and yet Jesus doesn't say to them well done for giving a tenth of everything that you have although that might be a good starting point but instead Jesus looks at the people at at this woman who puts in everything that she has out of her poverty and he commends her for her sacrificial giving Jesus has already throughout the gospel sorry Jesus has been 
just kind of drip feeding in this fact that the life that he causes followers to is one of sacrificial obedience to following after him. That is what the cross is all about, sacrificial obedience to, to, to God. And looking at this lady as she chucks in her literally all that she has to live Uh, to live on that day Jesus looks at her and commends her as the example of faith you know I I got told the other day that somebody had made a really generous gift to the church and I thought oh that's fantastic isn't that great isn't it great that somebody was moved and it is it's great that somebody was moved in that sort of way it doesn't matter though the amount it's the fact that somebody was moved and the point that Jesus is making is this even to you people Pharisees Sadducees keepers of the law, teachers of the law, faithful Jews who are doing what the law says, giving a tenth. That is nothing compared to what this woman who puts in out of her poverty is doing. And all I want to say this morning is that if that doesn't challenge you, and if that doesn't challenge me, then there is something very seriously wrong in our hearts. Jesus says more or more about money and wealth than he does about many other things because he realizes so, so, so clearly and so keenly that it is the way to our hearts. I don't know what the potential in this church would be for financial giving. I, you know, Thankfully, I don't look at the accounts. I know nothing about them. I never will. Just, I just want to kind of set your mind at ease in that sense in case you were going to worry about it. But I do know this, or I would hazard a guess. We, we run on about 120 grand a year. I think it's, it's give or take 120 grand a year. Will I say it? If we were to be faithful to the challenging teaching of Jesus in this. And I don't want to get bogged down in the whole it has to be to your local church because I know that there are many other great ways that we give uh, and, and should give as well. But it, even if we just all tithed, gave a tenth of what we have, that figure would, I don't even want to put up, but that figure would rise astronomically. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, the one, she is the example of living and giving that I am after in my followers. It's huge. It is huge, and it was different, and I, you know, and but let's allow ourselves. If I could just simply end, and this isn't a polished ending, and I didn't know quite how to, but can I just ask us and pray that we sit with the uncomfortableness of this teaching for us, for many of us who sit in the comfortableness of life the rest of the time. And that we sit with the uncomfortableness of the teaching and I'll ask the Holy Spirit to continue teaching us about what it looks like to love God and neighbor in a radical and revolutionary way. I come to you not with answers, but as a brother who is walking this path with you, 
but as somebody who is also saying, if we truly allow the word of God to change us and not just leave us making the errors that the Sadducees were making and that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were making, then something's going to change. Let's pray. And as we pray, the, the band will come up and just lead us very... Uh, in one final song, as this is being sung, if you could go out and collect uh, people from King's Kids, uh, people from King's Kids, children from King's Kids, collect people as well, you know. I think Douglas could probably do a rescuing by now. But let's stand together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word challenges us. Your word inspires us. It inspires me to want to change. It inspires me to want to live a life that is more like the life that you intend for your people. And God, I just, as we, as we wrestle with these issues, as we think about these challenges, may we just leave here also encouraged that your desire is to give us fullness of life. And so anything that you ask us to do is not going to rob us, is not going to restrict us, but is actually going to be a gift to us even if in our hearts we can't quite feel that yet would you help us to walk in obedience and would you be glorified in us and through us we pray in your precious name Amen